Welcome back to our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Samuel. Right now, we are smack dab in the middle of meeting the man that God has chosen to be Israel's first king. And as I tried to think about how do I relate to that, a man kind of out of nowhere becoming king of a nation, one of the questions I've been asking myself is essentially, you know, what would it look like for every king, every queen, every leader, you know, you and I, whether it's in our country, in our company, or in our homes, to be able to lead as if God was with us. You know, what would it look like for you and I to live and lead with confidence that God is with you? You see, that is what is being offered to Saul in these pages of 1 Samuel. In fact, our key verse in chapter 10 is verse 7. It's actually the first verse of the passage we're looking at today, which says, And let it be... When these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. If you remember last week, Samuel had outlined for Saul a number of things that were going to happen that very day. And then some instructions for Saul as well, obedience that he had been asked for. And, and this is exactly why. He wants him to know that when these signs happen... That is his proof. That is his evidence. That is so that he knows God is with you. What would it look like for you and I to lead that way? Well, let's dig deeper into that right now because that is, as I mentioned, the first verse of our passage. That when these signs come, Saul would know God is with you. And so look at how it goes on. It says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So first Saul is going to see evidence and then Saul is called to obedience. Essentially what this means is that you and I should expect evidence that God is with you. That's a gift that he is giving to Saul. He wants it to be obvious for Saul. He wants Saul to have confidence that he can live and lead like God is with him. And so to do that, you can expect evidence that God is with you. In fact, that evidence is one of the things that God is extremely careful throughout all of human history to make sure that his people know for sure that he is with them. If you track this through the Bible, it actually begins all the way back at the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, God literally just dwells with Adam and Eve. They take walks in the garden together in the cool of the evening. But as you and I know, just like us, Adam and Eve did not live up to the standard that God had for them. And so they are removed from the garden. And yet it is right in that moment that God says, I still want you to know that although you have fallen short, I have not abandoned you. That God wants us to know he is still here, he is still with us. And so we see numerous examples throughout the Old Testament, whether it be a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire leading his people through the wilderness. Or when God designs what is known as the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, a place that the people could come, meet with God, a physical structure that let them know God is still with you. God still cares. God is still bringing mercy and forgiveness in this place. And when his people came into the promised land, the tabernacle was finished, but they built 
the temple. It's actually Solomon, the son of David, who we'll meet in a couple of weeks, who builds the temple, a more permanent structure that when it was dedicated, it was called a place where when God's people had made massive mistakes, turned their back on God and rebelled against him, if they came and prayed in that place, sacrificed in that place, God would hear their prayer and forgive. They would know God is with them. But then the people are taken into captivity, away from the temple, and they wonder and they fear that they can't be with God anymore and God isn't with them. And so God reminds them through the prophets that he is not contained by a building. He is still with them. And after hundreds of years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus Christ shows up. God in the flesh, the New Testament actually uses this phrase that he tabernacled among us. God himself in the flesh dwelling with us. Now you can shake his hand. You can give him a hug. You can, I don't know if they did high fives back then, but you could if you wanted to. And they even called him Emmanuel, God with us. And when Jesus died and rose again and ascended back into heaven, he told his followers, I'm not leaving you alone. It's actually going to be even better for you because I'm sending you my spirit. And the New Testament describes that now, if you are a follower of Christ, forgiven through his death and his resurrection, his Holy Spirit dwells in you. It describes us as the temple, that we are the visible manifestation and the evidence that God is with us. That's the promise that he's made for you. That's the promise that we see reflections of in what he spoke to Saul. And when Saul saw that evidence, the next thing for him was obedience. Samuel asked him to go from his home in Gibeah to meet Samuel in Gilgal. Now, this becomes a moment that is really foreshadowing of things to come. Because right here, we see in this excellent moment for Saul that he is obedient in all of those ways. He does those things, he sees the signs, he comes to Gilgal, and kind of everything goes according to plan. Interestingly, it is this same thing, how Samuel says, wait for me for seven days, I will come and do the sacrifice, that just a couple chapters from now, in Gilgal, will get Saul into a different kind of trouble. But for today, we see the evidence, and we see his obedience. And I think that that is for us as well. And so if you look at the next couple verses, notice it says that it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, on Saul, and he prophesied among them. Did you know that? <laughs> Do you know that Saul was a prophet? Until we started reading this again, I, I had no idea that he had a moment like this. But look at what it says here. God gave him another heart. The Spirit of God came upon him. You notice that what's going on here is that Saul is being asked for obedience, but ultimately it's God who's doing the work. It's God who's giving him the ability to do the work. That God doesn't say, Saul, this is what I've lined up for you. Now let's see if you can pull it off or not. And I'm so comforted by that because there are so many times in my life where it is so easy to see the obedience that God is calling me to and to feel like I've got to pull it off. 
And I don't know about you, but I couldn't tell you how many times like I tripped down that hill before realizing I've been trying to do it on my own. And, and I want us to be careful because we have to remember that we're in an Old Testament moment here. But this is using language that reminds us of New Testament truth. And so there's a little bit of nuanced difference for you and I to understand between Saul and us. It says that, Saul, that God gave him another heart and that the Spirit of God came upon him. Now those sound very similar to what we would describe in the New Testament. That when somebody comes to Christ, when somebody has that moment of what we call repentance, to change my mind, to change my heart, to recognize I do not save myself, but I do need a Savior, and that I believe that God is right about the standard I've fallen short of and the forgiveness I need, we often call that a change of heart. We see how many times in the New Testament it describes that God is pursuing us that way, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, and that he begins to work that change of heart in us. But notice this difference too. It says the Spirit came upon Saul. Well, that's kind of Old Testament language where As we understand it, it seems like the Spirit comes and goes. He'll come upon somebody with a special gift for a unique moment in time to accomplish something that God has given for them to do. But in the New Testament, it's much stronger language. Not just that the Spirit comes upon us, but that the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, through our forgiveness, comes into us, dwells in us, and seals us for eternity. Friends, the promise that you have is far greater than what Saul experienced. And yet, the gift is from the same God. That he wants to give us a changed heart. That he wants to give us his spirit to accomplish what he's asking us to do. In fact, these are some of the kinds of words that we use when we celebrate baptisms. That we say, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus, his son, who died and rose again so that I could be forgiven. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who actually gives me the power to live that out from day to day. I know that the time that we're living in right now is different and strange. Normally we would be preparing for baptisms in a couple weeks. I don't know exactly what's going to happen there. But I would encourage you, if that's something that you haven't done, you know, if you've put your trust in Christ but haven't been baptized yet, you know, if you believe these things, would you just reach out to us? Because I would love to talk to you more about that. Maybe answer questions or, or just hear some of your own story. Because that's part of the evidence that we begin to see in these moments. So what does that evidence look like? What does it look like if I expect the evidence of God in my life? Because I don't know about you, <laughs> I have not prophesied like Saul apparently did in this moment. I've never walked down a hill and found people dancing, worshiping, prophesying and said, me too, let's do it. And yet I do think that I've seen God's evidence in my life. And I know talking to many of you that you've seen this too. Sometimes it's as simple as the changed heart that has you a little more tuned in to that little voice in your head that, you know, maybe you call it your conscience, but you realize that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. That he calls to your attention when you are just about to do something or maybe you just did something. That emotion got away from you a little bit. That temptation trapped you in a way you didn't expect. That just doesn't line up with who God is or or what he has planned for you. And that voice that calls you back, 
that reminds you of the strength you have to overcome, that's evidence that God is with you. You know, other times it is the joy of overcoming temptation, not just once, but again, like five minutes later when the temptation is still there, two days later when it's still there, a week later when you stumble and he reminds you, you are forgiven, don't give up, he gives you strength, God is with you, you can overcome. I know I've seen it in my own life when I pray for things like patience and kindness, um, just Go ahead, ask my family, ask my wife, ask my kids. The limits of my human patience are very low. <laughs> but if I sincerely ask God, God, your spirit tells me that patience is one of his fruits, that it's one of the things that he wants to give me. And I know that I run out, God. Would you give me your patience? And then I find myself in, myself in moments where my emotions are getting way, away from me and the Spirit speaks, have patience, have my patience. And there's evidence that God is with me. I was talking to a friend this past week in the middle of everything that is going on with coronavirus. He told me what sounds so simple and yet as I heard this over the phone, it was the most incredible story. Because uh, my friend Brian has been dealing with the fact that his business has been labeled non-essential. And so overnight he had to shut down and he's been making really difficult decisions and had really difficult things to pray about in terms of not only his business and his own family, but his employees and just all of those pieces. And so he, he described for me how in this moment he felt like he had no choice but to trust God. And in my head I'm thinking, well you definitely have other choices, <laughs> but that is the best one, right? And it was amazing because he described how in an earlier time in his life that would not have been his default but that he has seen God faithful in so many ways throughout his life that even though money tempts him to be one of the things he relies on, when that thing has been pulled away, he's found it most natural for him to just say, God, whatever happens, I trust you. Right? That's evidence that he sees in his own life. Even beyond that, other people could see the evidence around him. Think about Saul, for example. People see Saul prophesying. It's clear to them God is doing something here. And for Brian, the same thing happened. He was on a phone call with a couple of his friends uh, living in other places. And they described how they've seen businesses hurting around them, how they've seen people frustrated, scared, and anxious at this time. And as they listened to Brian talk, um, I, th I think he told me that these friends were not Christ followers. And so he starts talking about how right now the best thing for him is that he just knows that he has hope because God is in control. And from the other end of this phone, from the other end of his conversation, one of his friends says, well, I have not heard anybody talking like that. Everybody around here is angry. They're frustrated. You know, they're angry at each other. They're angry at the government. Like, you name it. Anger seems to be the primary choice. I haven't seen anybody even know that that was a choice to have hope. And so Brian and I just got to celebrate a little bit in that moment how God might even be using this evidence in Brian's life to be evidence to other people that God is still here. God is at work. He is not surprised by what is happening and he wants us to know. He wants us to expect evidence that he is with us. So watch how that continues in the next couple of verses because this is real life for us just like it is for Saul. 
So if we come back to verse 11, notice that it says, It happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went on to the high place. Now, this is kind of a strange moment, but I think this is helpful for you and I. Because the kind of thing that Brian experienced, the kind of thing I know many of you have experienced, I I hear these stories, I've seen it myself. Sometimes as God works that change in you, as that evidence becomes more obvious to people around you, your friends, your family, there are absolutely going to be people who knew you formerly who are going to say, yeah, right. Drew self-controls his anger. Yeah, right. Drew is patient and kind. I, not in those places, at least. I, I've seen him there before. You know, it's one of the places where you almost can expect people to doubt the evidence. But don't let that frustrate you. Don't let that bring you down. Keep asking God that the heart that he's changing, the spirit that he's giving, would give you the confidence to do what he's called you to do. That's what Saul was actually getting so right in this moment. And so for them, it actually becomes a saying. They're they're so shocked by this. But somebody else who lives there says, well, you're surprised because this is Kish's son. And and Kish is not some great prophet, priest, or anything. How is his son doing this? But don't miss the fact that these other guys, they're just regular guys too. Except that God has given them this gift. God has given them the ability to do this. They didn't inherit it from their dad or his dad. It's because God is here. God is at work right now. It goes on in verse 14 that now that Saul has come home, it seems, he meets up with his uncle. Now remember, his uncle is still thinking about the donkeys and where did Saul go and all these things. So Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? So he said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. Ah, now that piques his uncle's interest. So Saul's uncle said, tell me please what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel said. Just take note of that for a minute. Because watch how Samuel goes on. Then Samuel right after Saul has just kind of left this little piece of information out. Like, oh, the donkeys are gone, but, um, you know, that's pretty much all Samuel said. Well, Samuel knows there's a lot more that God is still doing here. So Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppress you. You notice what God is doing here. He is reminding them of the evidence that he is with them and he has always been with them. In the same moment that Saul begins to shrink away, God steps up and says, don't forget, I am God, I am with you, I have always been with you. But, verse 19, you have today rejected your God. It's not that God is not here, but that they are rejecting him. 
You have rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations and you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. See, God wants to make sure that they understand he has been there. He has not left and he is not leaving. It goes on in verse 20. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. Now that's significant. And it may be that the way they do this is they used to essentially cast lots by taking small stones and on each stone would be written the name of one of the tribes or one of the families. And you and I know, we've already seen, God told Samuel exactly who the king was going to be. So essentially, this is not a lottery like to find out who might be the king. It is a way that God used from time to time to prove to them that this wasn't Samuel's doing. That Samuel hasn't fixed this, Samuel didn't choose. In fact, Let's pull it out randomly and you'll see that it is in fact exactly the man that God had already told them would be king. That it is exactly the one that God has chosen. So think about that for Saul. Saul doesn't trip into this. This isn't an accident. Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But watch what happens next. Because he was chosen, now they know who their king is. When they sought him out, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? You told us there's a king, but we can't find him. Is he here yet? And the Lord answered, I love this, how God totally rats him out. There he is, hidden among the equipment. (laughs) Like, God is not going to let Saul hide from this thing. Saul is the one that God has chosen. When the people are looking for him, God's going to show him where he is. But I want you to notice this phrase that he could not be found. Two things right in a row we see about Saul. One, he is chosen. Two, he could not be found. Would you just notice, because this is important for you and I, that phrase that is spoken of Saul, he could not be found, that is never spoken of God. There is never a moment that you will seek God with all your heart and not be able to find him. Inasmuch as he has told us that he will give us evidence that he is with us, he has told us that he is with us wherever we go. In fact, I think that if Saul had been able to take hold of that in the verse before, that he was chosen, that God was with him, then we might not have found ourselves in this verse. But I actually think that this starts to reveal a core issue for Saul. And it's something that we need to pay attention to because even in the midst of God's presence, God working, Saul just prophesied, there's an insecurity that is creeping in. And I think you and I need to search out insecurity because that is the thing that would hold us back even in the presence of God from doing what God has chosen us to do. I think that when this moment creeps in for Saul, you know, there's a little bit of it that seems like it might be humility. But humility shows up in different ways. And I'm not actually sure this is a good one for Saul. You see, there's kind of a difference between true humility and false humility. And the false humility can turn into insecurity. 
So one of the easiest ways for me to think about this, and maybe for you too, true humility, I, I love this kind of catchy way of saying it, true humility is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's not putting myself down and thinking that I'm not worthy, I'm not worth it, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. It's not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. So in this moment for Saul, true humility would be, how can I encourage God's people? Maybe I don't feel like I'm up to this, but if this is what God has called me to and he is with me, then how do I serve him? How do I serve the people? How do I focus on others? Because false humility comes in a couple of different forms. And one of those is kind of like, I pretend that I'm putting myself down so that you'll pick me up. Like fishing for compliments, basically, right? Oh, I, I'm no good. I, I'm not as good as other people. I, I shouldn't probably even really be doing this, but trying to get you to tell me, oh no, 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 you're wonderful, you're great. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I guess I am great now that you tell me that. Right, I mean, we see through that one a hundred miles away, don't we? I mean, you can sense when people are fishing for compliments. It doesn't feel like that's what Saul is doing here. But the other false sense of humility is that it's not fishing for compliments. I legitimately think I'm not good enough, I'm no good, nobody should like me, and I put myself down. Friends, I would tell you, I don't think that's humility. I think that's insecurity. And I think that over the next few chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, we are going to see that that insecurity may actually be at the root of everything that goes wrong for Saul. Because in this moment, he begins to believe that he is not up to the task. In this moment, he doesn't tell his uncle. Then he hides from Samuel and the people. And I wonder if he's sitting there you know, this, this guy that is head and shoulders above everybody else, crouched behind like a shield or something somewhere, hoping nobody sees him. If he's telling himself, I can't be king. I'm not good enough for this. I'm not ready for this. I don't know how to do this. I wouldn't know where to begin. And he's already forgotten the God who is with him. The God who changed his heart. The God who would tell him, my spirit is upon you to do this. You know, I've struggled with this a number of times in my own life. And so it's become something that is really important on my heart to share with other people. And just recently, I was talking to a young man in our congregation who was talking about himself exactly like that. You know, a man who would say, I'm not good enough. I know, I know everybody makes mistakes, but my mistakes are worse. And if people knew my mistakes, like they would realize what I deserve is to be punished. And as I was listening to him talk about this, you know, I could hear you know, the echoes of broken thoughts that, that used to go through my own mind, try to attack me still from time to time. And as he talked about this, I tried to encourage him, like, listen, even if those things happened, even if those things are true, you know, God wants to offer you forgiveness. You, you can't talk about yourself that way. You can't just go on repeating how horrible you feel like you are, how unworthy you feel like you are, and how um, terrible you are. And his response to me in that moment was, well, it's true. So we had a really good conversation. And a lot of it was stuff that 
I'm so thankful for leaders and counselors and people in my own life who have spoken to me because the reality is I don't have to convince them that it's not true. Right? I mean, do you realize how many places in Scripture God says, this person was the worst, but I forgave them. How many times there are people in Scripture who when faced with a holy God say, I am not worthy. And it is true. But God lifts them up. God demonstrates to them, it is not about your worth. It's about his. I mean, isn't that what we just celebrated at Easter when we were looking at Revelation 5? That that's it. Like nobody is worthy. Like nobody is due any reward from God. Nobody deserves to be made king or given spiritual gifts or or any of that. None of us have earned that. None of us are worthy except God. And God has chosen you. And so this has become one of my favorite kind of deep dive Bible studies. Whenever I find these things, I I love to pull them out, meditate on them. And I wanted to share just a few of them with you because these names that you see, Jacob, David, Solomon, Paul, some of the most famous names that come out of the Bible, some of the greatest leaders that God's people have ever known. And each one of them has had at least one moment where they say, who am I? that I would even begin to pretend to think that God could even sort of use me. That he would really choose me. Jacob, in Genesis 32, I, I won't turn to all of these, but I'll just try to give you an insight. Most of the time, if you think of Genesis 32, it's because that's when Jacob wrestles with God and is given his new name, Israel. But just before that, Jacob has a moment where he comes to the Jordan River and he stands before that river at a point in his life that he has seen God do so much and he basically says, God, I don't deserve all of the blessing or all of the truth that you have given me. And I think our temptation is to stop right there, to say, I don't even deserve this. But I love what Jacob does next because instead he turns it to thanksgiving and worship. He says, when I first came to this river, all I had was my staff. Now I am two complete companies of people. So God, would you help me today? Because I'm going out to meet my brother. He doesn't stay there. He instantly says, and because I've seen how faithful you are, even when I didn't deserve it, would you help me today? David in Psalm 8 actually writes for all mankind, what is man that you are mindful of him? We don't deserve that. But he immediately turns it to worship. And yet, you've made him a little lower than the angels. And he celebrates God. David's son Solomon, when he builds the temple, which God specifically chose him to do, part of Solomon's prayer of dedication is he says, who am I? Literally, who am I that I should build the temple for God to meet his people? And yet, God chose him. And so he goes on to pray one of the most beautiful prayers over the people, over the temple, and in the sight of God for how God would use that place to meet his people. Not because Solomon deserves it, not because God owes it to him to be the one who gets to serve that way, but because in a moment when the people need a leader who can lead with the confidence that God is with them, Solomon stepped up. And one of my favorites is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. I will read you this one. 
Because I think verses 9 and 10 are the kinds of thing that the enemy would try to use against us before God turns it to encourage us. Paul, in his own words, says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's verse 9. And if you stop right there, I don't know about you, but I know that there are times where I am hiding in the equipment. Instead of stepping up in confidence with who God has called me to be, I'm hiding in the equipment because I feel like I can say that verse. I am not even worthy. I don't even belong here because I know what I did. That Saul says specifically, I don't deserve this because I persecuted the church of God. Maybe for you, there's something else you would fill in that blank. I don't deserve this because... Go ahead, fill that in right now. Maybe you feel like you're not worthy because, fill in the blank. But then Paul writes verse 10. I am not worthy to be called this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You and I can say verse 9 because we also know the truth of verse 10. I'm not worthy, but I am chosen and God is with me. There are even more examples than this. That's all I'll give you for right now. But hey, ask me sometime because I love them. Or if you find one, share it with me. Because the Lord chose you, like he chose Saul, to lead like royalty. The Lord chose you to lead like royalty. You see, when we begin to understand how God has chosen us, when we begin to understand how he has gifted us, how he is with us to accomplish these things, when you begin to take confidence in the fact that you're chosen, not because you are good enough, but because he loves you and he wants you to see how he is at work, then some of these verses begin to make more sense to us. Look at verse 23. It says, They ran and brought him from there, And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! And I love this, what happens next. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. Right, that God still had specific ways that he wanted the king to lead. That even though Saul is made king, he still has to submit to God. That in some ways, even Samuel still has authority over him. You know, and there's a New Testament perspective here for us as well. Because you have been chosen and God has described for us how to lead. Yeah, it's much like Jesus says to his own disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. And so I wonder if some of what Samuel shared with Saul may have been out of Deuteronomy 17. You know, that, that the king is not to amass wealth for himself. He is to be faithful to his wife. He's to be humble. But one of those key pieces was actually that 
the king needed to know God's word. That part of it was for the king to actually write out parts of God's word so that he would know it and it would sink into his heart. And that's one of the things that I think is valuable for us. But that can be hard to do, right? In fact, I want to show you this. We have actually been working on something to help you do exactly that thing. We call it Honest to God, A Pathway to Prayer. And we've been filming some new video vignettes to go with this that are actually uh, releasing in just a couple of days. So if you're signed up for our e-news, you'll see that. If you check the website, you'll see that. But that's basically what this stuff is. It's to help you and I lead like, loyal, lead like royalty by digging into God's word. To open up, particularly here from the Psalms, to explore what that means for us, dig deeper into how we apply that, and then try it for ourselves. And so um, this will actually be on the website as a PDF. If you like a hard copy the way I do and you want to use this, uh, you know, let us know. We'll mail one to you. But the idea is that we are always trying to equip each other to get deeper into God's word, to understand how do I talk to him? How do I pray through his word? How do I lead like royalty? I mean, that's a huge part of our vision here at Horizon. That we believe that we are here to help you connect with God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. And you know, that, that last bit, a community of, of growing Christ followers, I think is the kind of thing that God has in mind in this next verse, verse 26. I, I love this. It says that Saul also went home to Gibeah and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Take that in for a second. Valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. Not only has God changed his heart, not only has God offered him the Spirit's help, but God even puts people around him in whom God is already working. Friends, I love this because I need this. And I would encourage you, pray for this and be this. I need you to be valiant. We need you to be valiant. You need us to be valiant. Has God touched your heart? Has God chosen you? Maybe even right now in this season, with everything that coronavirus is changing in our world, with everything that has shifted, with everything that is uncertain, has God touched your heart? Are there places that you see people around you who don't know him? Are there places that, that you or others feel anxiety, feel fear, or maybe feel like they should be, but they feel awfully normal? <laughs> Can I ask you something? Can I just level with you right now? I believe God wants you to be valiant. that you could pray valiantly for the people around you. That this would be a season where people turn back to God, maybe for the first time, recognize the hope that he offers. That you can valiantly resist temptation 
Valiantly resist the devil and he will flee from you. Valiantly listen to your child when they want your attention. Valiantly be patient and kind to your spouse, your family. Valiantly lead at work. Valiantly share the honest trust that you have in God. If you see a need around you right now in this season, whatever that may be, if God has touched your heart, would you give valiantly? Pray valiantly and lead valiantly because God is with you. Can I pray that way for you right now? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that despite the feelings that we have of unworthiness, we do not have to let fear, anxiety, or insecurity hold us back from what you have called us to do. God, I thank you that we know right now in this world, as everything else seems to be shifting, you are steadfast, you do not change, and you have chosen us to bear much fruit. So would you remind us of these words, that you are with us, and you have touched our hearts to be valiant, that we might lead courageously in these days and the days to come because we know that you are with us. Amen. Friends, be valiant. God is with you.